Our sermon text this morning is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrisons, a garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. All right, well, a lot's happened since chapter 11, where we see Saul, um, he is filled with the Spirit, and his anger is kindled against old snake eyes, Nahash, if you remember, the Ammonites, and God wrought a great military victory, and everybody celebrated, and very exciting. Now, here in chapter 13, we see Saul and the people of Israel shaking in their boots in the presence of their enemies. So, what happened? What's changed? Well, a hint can be found in Samuel's farewell address there in chapter 12. And let's just read some of that, uh, beginning in verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So let's see where things went south for Israel here. Let's look at our text today. Uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, just to begin here now. And I will warn you, there is this, in verse 1, it's this, this well-known textual variant problem with num a number. So we'll read it, and then I'll talk about it. Saul lived for one year and then became king. I think you already see it. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and uh, the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So again, verse 1, we have this little problem. In most of the manuscripts, there's no number there. It just says uh, Saul lived blank years, and then became king. Um, and I could talk about this for a while because many theologians have and scholars have for many years, but we don't want to waste our day doing this. So here's what I'm going to say. Um, well, besides, it really doesn't matter, but it, it, you know, as far as any textual, any, any truth of, of theology, but I'm going to 
remind us that all of Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All of Scripture is preserved, uh, and God is in His sovereignty preserved all these manuscripts. And, and by the way, the whole Bible comments on the Bible. So fortunately, we do know how long uh, Saul reigned. We have Acts 13, 21, where, where Luke gets the news from Paul and is, is reminded that he reigned for 40 years. That's what Acts 31, 21 tells us. And as far as the age here, that happens. So again, our critics of the Bible like to come up and say, oh, there's numerical problems. There's punctuational problems. There's, there's errors all through the Bible. But again, those errors are, are mostly things like this, numerical discrepancies, um, punctuation, spelling, things like that. And so again, it has nothing to do with the redemptive message of God to his covenantal people. So let's jump on then to, and again, it makes, uh, and it also helps us to, I find more comfort knowing there was a discrepancy than thinking that Saul was one years old, reigning, and at two years old, he decided to call a thousand guys from here. And so that God could do that, but I've explained it. Here we go. Verse two, what does that tell us? It goes on to say that Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, right? And then out of that, he divided his army. He kept 2,000 men at Michmash. Michmash, I have to just say really quick, just get this out of my system. Our family tradition, we are the McDaniel family, by the way, and for, is my, when my kids were young, our family tradition was Friday night Michmash. Just to let, so our, every time I hear this, I'm just thinking about the Friday night Michmash. Okay, that's done. <laughs> so what we've got here is this dividing of the kingdom. Now remember, back in chapter 11, Saul raised a tremendous army to go after uh, Nahash, right? Three, over 300,000 is what it says. And, and so now we have him sending the majority of those people home, it says, and he kept 3,000. He, he himself controlled 2,000, and he gave his son Jonathan 1,000. Okay, so that's what's, what's happening here. Now, God has raised up Saul for the purpose of being a king, and a king's job is to fight for his people. As a matter of fact, God has already given Israel a mandate, which was to clear the land, right? All that land belongs to them. It's their land. All these other people uh, need to be driven out according to God's uh, original command for the people of Israel when they come into the promised land. And so, so I, I, I think what we're going to see here is this, this bit of the character flaw of Saul. He, he just doesn't believe God, bottom line. And we're going to see that play out over and over. We're also going to see Jonathan here give us a glimpse of what a king should be. Jonathan did believe God. Uh, look at what happens in verses 3 through 4. Because we have a political sensitive situation going on here, right? you got the Philistines who really are basically the overlords of the Israelites. They're allowing them to kind of have some freedom, but they're all on every side, and they're pretty much um, telling them what they can and cannot do. And so in a sense, Israel is in an occupied situation. They're occupied by the Philistines. Um, so notice what happens here. I think Saul actually is trying to keep some political peace. But look what happens in verse 3. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let all the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. All right. 
A lot going on there, right? Um, so, so again, we see that not Saul. Saul didn't take the initiative here. I think Saul might have been, may have been just as shocked as everybody that a battle ensued and that there was actually victory. Remember, he gave Jonathan only 1,000 troops. But what Jonathan did was he trusted God and said, we're supposed to drive people out. These guys are on our property. I'm driving them out. And he did. He did. So, so, so it's interesting, though, as we continue to, to read this. So Saul uh, didn't seem to have this kind of a spunk to trust God and move forward. But Jonathan is, is showing he does. And Jonathan, therefore, takes the initiative. But notice that Saul takes the glory. You see that? Yeah, right away, our text tells us that the public relations department of the king went into high gear and they spun this political event in favor of the king. So all Israel heard the news that Saul has driven out uh, the, the, the Philistines from the garrison at Geba. He had to, right? Because even though he wasn't planning it, he better get on board now because this thing is moving, right? And he can't let Jonathan take all the glory. And again, that shows a little bit of Saul's character already for us, right? Just another glimpse of some of the flaws in his character. So what happens is, in a, in a real sense then, we, we, we can understand by, this, by them being in Geba and having an outpost, that Israel wasn't an occupied territory. The Philistines really were calling the shots. Um, they had a little freedom. I mean, sure, you say, wait a minute, they just mustered an army and, and they took out Nahash and they took out the Ammonites. Yeah, because the Ammonites were on this side and the Philistines were on this side and the Israelites were between them and it was advantageous for the Philistines to let Israel take out Nahash. So it worked for them. But this didn't because now they're attacking the Philistines themselves. So notice this is made evidence, this idea that they are controlling Israel. If you look at verses 19 through 22 of our text, it says this. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. Blacksmiths are vital for ironwork and to make weapons, right? But there was none in all of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of axes and for the setting of the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people of, of, uh, that were with Saul and Jonathan. So you see this, this power uh, struggle going on here that the Philistines are really over the Israelites in this sense. They've taken all the blacksmiths away. They won't permit it. And now Israel has to go down to the Philistines to get their lawnmower blade sharpened and they got to pay for it. And now when this battle arises, the Philistines are getting angry because they've been attacked and they're mustering forces now. The Israelites have no, no weapons. However, like uh, Jonathan, we should all understand that they don't need no weapons. They don't need weapons. I mean, God showed Saul already, right, that he doesn't need anything but God for victory. And David understood that, right? David understood that God is more valuable than human weapons. Psalms 20, verse 7, David said, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Jonathan obviously had that same, same feeling. So now Jonathan has stirred the pot right? <laughs> Jonathan has stirred the pot, and now Israel is a stench 
in the nostrils of the Philistines. So they are now mad and they're coming out to prove that they are the superior force. So if we look at verses five through seven, here's what's happening. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash. They've already moved. You see, that was when we first started our text. That's where Saul and his men had, were, were, were assembled in Michmash. But by this point, we see that there's already been a push by the Philistines and, and the Israelites have already given up ground. And so now the Philistines are at Michmash to the east of Beth Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So the purpose of this text, this, these verses, really is to illustrate the impossible situation going on. The, the writer is um, inspired here to show this outlandish number. By the way, 30,000 chariots, even for the Egyptians, would have been an amazing number. So this, this is a, a, a literary purpose to show us that, man, this is an impossible situation. You've got, you've got soldiers that, that are like the sands of the sea, uh, seashore. They can't be numbered. So that's the purpose. However, if Saul would just follow the directions, everything is going to be just fine. Right? That's what, that's what all of Israel's history shows us, right? If, if we will just follow, trust, and obey, and submit to God, everything will be fine. So verse 7 and 8 shows us, uh, chapter 10. If we go back to Saul, 1 Samuel 10, verses 7 and 8, we see the instructions. And here they are from the prophet Samuel. Verse 7, Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you, Saul. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So let's see how well Saul listens. Verse 8, says he waited seven days okay he waited seven days the time appointed by samuel but samuel did not come to gilgal and the people were scattering from him so saul said bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings and he offered the burnt offering as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering behold samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. So it seems that Saul waited seven days almost. But not completely, not quite. The text would kind of enumerate to us that he didn't wait till the very last second of that seventh day. He got a little worried when he didn't see things happening and he took matters into his own hands. Look at verse 11 and 12. Samuel said, what have you done? So right away, he just uh, ignores all the pleasantries. Saul's trying to <laughs> cover, hi, Samuel, how you doing? Good to see you. Wow, wonderful. 
But, but Samuel already knows what happened, and he doesn't even greet him. He just says, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you didn't come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Wow. So really what we see here, instead of confessing his sin, Saul makes excuses. Which, by the way, is the number one play in humans' playbooks. Instead of confessing our sins, instead of admitting our faults, we default to excuses. We're good at that. Anybody married in here? All right. Look at these excuses, by the way. Let's just review that a little bit. Instead of confessing his wrong, he makes these excuses. He says, well, the people deserted me. They were going AWOL, and they were. It's true. That's not a good reason. And you were late. You were late. <laughs> and the Philistines were coming. Excuse, excuse, excuse. Benjamin Franklin once said, I never knew a man who was good at making excuses that was good at making anything else. <laughs> it's pretty good. And really, these things don't really work because it's, it's, it's highly unlikely that the Philistines were coming to Gilgal. Gilgal was very isolated for the, for the first, in the first place. That's why Israel chose to gather there. They could assemble there pretty freely. And the distance was still, he was still at Michmash, miles away. So it wasn't as though there, this was an imminent threat. So again, Saul is exaggerating to make an excuse here as to why he was disobedient to the command that God had given through the prophet of God, God's man. Now, I will say one thing here. I, I, I think it's important to catch this beautiful note in this passage that we, that we sometimes miss. Now, the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. They're at Gilgal. It's here at Gilgal, right, that all this is happening. In chapter 12, Gilgal is the location where God reaffirms his covenant. That's where God reaffirmed his covenant with his people. You're my people, I'm your God. I will not forsake you. And then it's in chapter 13, in Gilgal, where Saul fails to keep the covenant. <laughs> and I know this is just a, a, an application, but I, my, my, my admonition to all of us is that may we live in Gilgal. Why? May we live in Gilgal, the place that reminds us that we can never keep our covenant with God and God can never break his covenant with us. That's where we as believers live. We admit daily our failings, our, our inability to be perfect, our inability to keep God's perfect law. And what do we do? Do we, do we give up? No, we rest in the very fact that it's at that very place that God says, I'm keeping the covenant for you. That's my grace. That's Christ. That's why you must rest in him daily and, and, and preach that gospel to yourself daily, that good news that though I am a sinner, though I am unable, God is able. And God is faithful. And he has delivered me through Christ. 
Look at verse 22. First, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 12, 22. Look, look at this. This is this promise of God. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So there it is. There's our faith. Our faith is in God. Not our good works, not our sacrifices, not our rituals, not our religiosity. We rest in the faithfulness of God. His promises are true, cannot fail. Now, let's look at the real reason that Saul took this action. <laughs> I mean, he, 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 he basically, by making this sacrifice, knowing, by the way, the Old Testament laws and the Levitical laws that only the priests are to make these sacrifices, Saul attempted to receive deliverance by merely performing a religious act. That's what he was doing here, right? Rather than trusting and obeying God, he thought that by acting, by doing some religious act, he would gain some superstitious favor and be saved from the Philistines, right? He'd seen this trick work before. Remember back in 1 Samuel 7 when, when Samuel had gathered uh, the, the, the people at Mitzpah to repent from not trusting in God and trusting in other things and other uh, kings and so forth. And he, he called them to Mitzvah to repent. And when the Philistines saw them gathered, they, they got suspicious and actually came against them. They, they came down to attack. And as Samuel was offering the burnt offering, as they were coming into attack, God thundered in the heavens and gave a great victory to the Israelites. He defeated the Philistines. So Saul remembered, oh yeah, when you do a burnt offering, things happen. So in a sense, that's what Saul's doing again here. Instead of trusting and obeying God's explicit commands, he's relying on religiosity in a superstitious way. He's trusting outward religious acts of worship more than the God he's worshiping. Did you hear that? I mean, we need to examine ourselves. This is such a sly thing that happens to people. We begin to trust our religious activity more than the God we are worshiping. It could be a problem for us today. Here, listen, here's, here's, here's the formula, basically. It's in our title. We've got to remember this. Faith and obedience precede religious acts and sacrifices. Faith and obedience, which are very synonymous. That precedes my outward actions and works of sacrifice. We've got to get that. Now, now let's continue. We're, we're going to come back to that, but look at, look at verse 22. 1 Samuel 15, 22. This is where we see this truth. This is, we're going to see this in a few weeks, but this is where Samuel finally confronts Saul again and, and makes this very clear, that point, that Faith and obedience precede your good works. In verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So that's literally what the prophet is saying. Your obedience and your faith in God comes first, then 
make the sacrifices. Then do the good works. So what does that mean? Listen to this. You're going to say, but Greg, listen. Those, those burnt offerings and sacrifices were commanded by God to be made. That's why they exist, because God initially commanded them. So he was obeying by performing those acts. Here's the key. This text is teaching us that obedience is more than just carrying out the visible act. Obedience is more than just carrying out the visible outward action. And listen to this. Get this, all of us. True obedience comes from the heart. Begins in the heart, it is in the heart. Do you realize that before you do any outward action, any kind of service, you have had to have already obeyed God in the heart for it to be genuine. My obedience happens in my heart before I do anything on the outside. That's why, as a disgruntled teenager, when I took the trash out many times, it looked like I was obedient, and yet I was sinful. Because though I was doing the outward act, when my dad said, take the trash out, son, and I did, in my heart I'm thinking, stinking, I hate this. I don't want to take this trash out. Are you kidding me? Get off your lazy butt yourself and take out the trash. <laughs> I'm just saying, man, that's, <laughs> that, that's what my heart was saying. And therefore, guess what? That act was sinful and detestable in the sight of God. It wasn't obedient because obedience happens in the heart. And so I know it's easy for us to mistake that and say, oh, obedience is good works. It's the actual works. No, obedience is my heart and faith in God to say, yes, I love you, God. I obey you. And then I do this outward act to bring glory to God. So, 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 so this is... This is this is what Jesus said to the people when he said, the people, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You're honoring me on the outside. You're saying the right things. You're doing the right things, but there's no obedience in your heart to me. You've not submitted to me as your king. That's what obedience is. I have faith in God. Therefore, I submit to God. That's obedience to God. He is my unequivocal leader in all matters. My heart's already surrendered to him. That's obedience from the heart. So it is that the true order is this. The true order that pleases God is we hear God's word. We love God's word. We obey God's word. Then we outwardly perform God's word and his command. So therefore, faith and obedience lead two good works. I mean, it's, it, it is a little bit of a stretch, right? I think it's going to help us to understand this. My obedience begins before I do anything, outwardly, any kind of religious sacrifice. Now, let's continue very quickly because, <laughs> honestly, as we're reading this, we're about to see something here. We're about to see a judgment from God. 
I want to see what you think about this, okay? Let's just read it and see if we think the punishment fits the crime. Ready? Here we go. Verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord... And Samuel arose. The people who were present with him, about 600 men, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. Snaps out. Look at this. That seems a bit harsh. Saul has just lost the kingdom. And now we would say, but you know, he's just making a rational decision. I mean, it was pretty bad. His army was leaving him. Everybody forsaking him. Prophet was late. And the army was a threat. He just made a prudent decision. You see, that's, again, our hearts, right? To justify our sin. This is where we forget how holy God is and how sinful we are. This is where we must be reminded that God is a God who says, make no treaty with the enemy, period. We don't make deals with sin or disobedience. We slay those things and we obey God. Even when it looks irrational to obey God. That's why we have faith, and that's why that's a gift of God <laughs> by His Spirit, that we still believe God in the midst of everything looking the totally other way. Whatever I just said there, what I'm saying is even when everything looks irrational and impossible, we still have faith and believe and obey God because that's a gift of God's grace. But here it is. I, I just want to say in this verse, it's not all these things that Saul lost that's the most pitiful and it grieves, should grieve us. The worst news are those few words that are kind of mixed in a, in, in a bit of, of geography. When it says, Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. Samuel left. So the worst loss that Saul had was not the troops that have gone AWOL. It wasn't that there were no weapons available to Israel. It wasn't that there were soldiers raiding. There were raiding parties coming in from the Philistines on three different sides always, just coming in at will, uh, taking what they want, plundering. It, but those weren't the greatest losses and, 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 and problems. The greatest loss was the ability to hear God's word from God's man. Because that's what he just lost. Because Samuel departed from Gilgal. I think uh, Dale Ralph Davis puts this well when he says, to be stripped of the direction of God's word is to be truly impoverished and open to destruction. It is one thing to be in terrible distress. It is another to be alone in that distress. 
And so like Saul, many today have isolated themselves from God's word and, and basically are left alone to manage through this maze of brokenness and suffering and pain and confusion in this world because without God's word and without God's law, we have no light. There is no direction. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. And I think we have to understand and, and, and agree that we've all done this. As a country, we've done this by rejecting the very laws and commands of God. And we wonder why. Why so much disrespect? Why no respect for any authority? Not just moms and dads or police officers, but just nobody's over me is, is the heart of human beings now. Well, because we turned our back on God's word a long time ago, took it out of any type of educational system. We, we, we didn't uh, catechize our children in the word of God. You see, basically, again, we brought it on ourselves in that sense because in our rejecting of the Bible, Samuel has left Gilgal. We, we have no word from God. And the Bible's clear. Where there is no vision, the people perish. That word vision means a word from the prophet. Because prophets received the visions from God and they gave the people God's word. So literally what it's saying is where there is no word of God, the people will perish. As churches, we've done this, right? As churches, we, we've isolated ourselves from the only source of hope and strength, the word of God, Right? By trusting in plans and programs and rituals and, and all these glitzy things rather than the word of God. As one commentator put it, the presence of glitz is no substitute for the power of God's word. And then we've done it individually in our own lives by, by seeking out every other bit of advice we can find rather than the word of God reading every other material we can read, watching every other program we can watch, spending time doing all kinds of other things in this world while the Word of God sits idle. So, 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 so Saul's problem was that he did not love God or his Word. He didn't really love God or his Word and therefore only kept his commandments outwardly and superficially, which could describe a lot of Christians today. You're a church, that's, that's great. You carry a Bible, that's awesome. You may read it sometimes, great. You may help people, all these different things, right? These outward things. I just want to challenge us in closing with just two questions, two, two, two things, not questions, but just, just two, two things for all of us out of this. Number one, question your motives for service. I want you to question your motives for service. Just genuinely question, why am I here? Why do I do what I do? Why do I work at Threads of Hope? Why do I watch the nursery? Why, why do I feed hungry people? Why do I do what I do? And then number two, I want to challenge us to immerse ourselves in God's word. I know, again, that's a, that's a cliche. Well, read the Bible, pray. Yeah, right. But we see what's, what's going on here. 
the Word of God, folks, literally the words of God, not just have a bunch of Bibles on your shelf and not just know about the Bible, not just read theology books about. No, I, what I'm saying is embrace the Word of God in your heart. Embrace the fact that this is God speaking to me. This is my only hope of any, any kind in this world. It's God's words, His wisdom, His commands help me cut through the muck and the mire of a world that has already deserted him. So I must immerse myself in that word. That word is my lifeline. Do not let Samuel leave your Gilgal. The Gilgal, when he departs, when the word of God departs, we're, we're, we're done. We think we're, we can go through the motions for years like Saul. We can all make sacrifices. But there's no power because we're not immersed in the very word of God, which is life. That's why Jesus said in, in Matthew 4, 34, when he was tempted, and the tempter came and said to him, if, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. May we be warned by this text today that we are Saul. I know we always want to be the hero. Well, folks, we're Saul. <laughs> we are tempted daily to follow our own plans, our own strengths that we think we have, our own wisdom. May we fall literally in love with God's word. In this sense, and here's it just, because it's, it's tantamount for us to live for God. And here's that order again, because I just want us to kind of get it in our minds, why it's so important. Because again, Saul shows us this. When Saul had a disrespect for the command of God, for the very word of God, everything fell apart. Now we could say, oh, he made excuses, or he was lazy, or he was scared. No, but the problem is he didn't love the Word of God. So again, you have to read God's Word in order to love God. Because that is how we know God. So we have to read God's Word in order to love God's Word, in order to obey God's Word, in our hearts in order to outwardly live out God's word for his glory. May he give us that longing and that hunger and that thirst. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word. Forgive us for our hypocrisy, for being a people who say we believe in you and yet never hear from you. Give us a hunger for your word. Let us thirst for it. Let us understand that it is life. More necessary than any other thing in this world. Because it tells us about a king of the ages who is our shepherd. It tells us about a kingdom that is ours. It tells us about a victory over this world that has been purchased by that king. 
So, Father, give us the grace to love your word and to obey it from the heart and then serve you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.